Hello, and welcome to Siren Coffee and Science, a series of conversations on hot topics in health and social care integration, brought to you by the Social Interventions Research and Evaluation Network at the University of California, San Francisco. Today's episode was originally recorded as a live web event and has been lightly edited for this podcast. Welcome to Siren Coffee and Science. I'm Dr. Damon Francis, Medical Director of the Homeless Health Center at Alameda Health System and Chief Clinical Officer of Health Leads. Today's conversation is the final of six coffee and science events on topics related to alignment and advocacy, which refer to roles that healthcare can play to address social needs at the community level. I'm excited to talk today with Dr. Noha Abalada, who is the Chief Executive Officer and co-founder of the Roots Community Health Center and a, a longstanding collaborator of mine and a friend. For the next half hour, Dr. Abalada and I will talk about Clean360, a soap factory that Roots operates, including how and why they decided to create it. Dr. Abalada, welcome to Coffee and Science. Thank you for having me. Before we get into Clean360, I think it'll be really helpful if you can just tell us something about Roots and especially what you feel makes Roots special. Sure. So Roots Community Health Center is a licensed community clinic but I think what really makes it special is, I think first our focus on uplifting those impacted by systemic inequities and poverty. And I think that that focus and framing has been with us since day one and the programs and services that we offer really have evolved from that lens about what are the community's needs to be well and how do we provide it and then how do we pay for it? What are some of the ways that you center that lens? A lot of us are familiar with community health centers in this work, the, the history of community health centers in the United States, but I think there's been an evolution of the community health centers to focus a lot on the payment structures, regulatory systems around them. But you know, when I go to Roots, I really, I, I feel like that's not just lip service, but I'm wondering if you could, if you could try to just you know, explain some of, the, some of the ways that you keep that focus on equity you know, across the population front and center for you guys. Yeah, I think there's a number of ways, but probably the most significant would be hiring from our community and training folks from the community and really valuing the experience of those who live in our community and have been the most impacted by some of the systems that we continue to have to interface with. And that really goes across our entire organization from the front line to the board. And also one of the most important job classes and the largest job class at Roots are our navigators. And so those are folks from the community that have some shared experiences with the people that they are navigating. And we spend a significant amount of time in terms of training folks as community health outreach workers and health coaches and in the social determinants of health and how to help their members go from crisis to a secure place in multiple domains of life. And they are, you know, we really value if they, if they are a navigator that is caring for a panel of formerly incarcerated people, they themselves have to have been impacted by incarceration. And we see that as a job qualification. And we invest in all of the structures and things that we need to do in order to do that in a way that is compliant and safe. And that is something that we've decided to invest in as an organization in order to be more responsive. Yeah, I think that's a really important foundation for, for thinking through you know, why you started Clean360. Can you, can you just start with telling us a, a little bit about what Clean360 is and what impact it's had on Roots patients, on the staff and surrounding community? And then I want to go back and talk about some of the founding of it. But just can you just give us an overview of what it is and, and what kind of impact it's having? 
Sure. So Clean360 is a, it's actually a workforce enterprise, but it is a business where we create natural bath and body products. And since the onset of the pandemic, we also manufacture quite a bit of hand sanitizer as well. And it is the training ground for our Emancipators program, which is a workforce training program that really welcomes people who have been marginalized from the workforce. And that may be due to barriers like legal barriers, convictions or a felony record and so forth. But also it could just be, um, you know, not having been in the workforce for, for some time or not having some of the skills needed to be in the workforce. And during that training program, basically they are learning both the hard skills of actual light manufacturing and quality control and all of the things that go into making these products. But they're also learning the soft skills around what is needed to uh, both get and keep, I think most importantly, keep a job in the future. And also they are working closely with the navigator who's helping them to actually remove some of those barriers. So whether there's record clearing remedies, whether it is removing liens or levies or child support orders or becoming compliant with probation and other things in order to ready them for the workforce. So really a lot of navigation and wraparound support. And then of course, connecting them with physical health and behavioral health resources as well. And what kinds of impacts have you seen on the people who participate, on your staff, on the surrounding community? I mean, it's really been profound and sort of hard to just really sum up, but I would say it is very transformative. We are really offering first off hope an opportunity for people who have been locked out of a way to feed themselves and their families. And sometimes we have people who have applied for literally dozens, hundred jobs and had the door shut in their face numerous times and um, have gone into a state of hopelessness. So we've seen also some of the physical health conditions and behavioral health conditions just really turn around in terms of um, behavioral health substance, even becoming more fit and more healthy overall. So the impacts are really pretty wide ranging. But once people successfully graduate from the Emancipators Program, we have seen a long-term positive impact on their earning potential, having benefits. They don't always stay in the job that they get right after Emancipators. We consider that also an amazing success that people feel they have options and to move into the next phase. And in terms of the finances, does the business make money? You know, what can you say about about that aspect of it? Yeah, so it was an investment at first. There's no doubt about it. Um, it was a it was a little bit of a hard sell to get funders to buy soap making equipment, you know, <laughs> or to to give give a clinic money to buy soap making equipment. And so that was a uh, you know that was really a commitment by our board to say we are going to support the startup of this enterprise. And then we started actually with a pilot with social services, Alameda County Social Services, to focus on people who had repeatedly been on general assistance, which tended to be in large part formerly incarcerated African-American men. And so we started from there and were able to really build up the enterprise. And it does generate revenue during the pandemic, actually, because we are so nimble and we're able to quickly move into the space of manufacturing hand sanitizer, we ended up supplying departments within the city of Oakland and being able to get larger customers that way. 
And I think one of the goals is to really target sort of large anchor institutions around socially responsible procurement so that we can continue to increase the revenue. But there's no question that the cost of the workforce training is something that has to absolutely be subsidized. And so that is something that we braid together much like we do for the entire organization. You kind of alluded to it, but I want to go back to like this moment in the organization where you were a clinic and you were having a conversation with board members of a clinic and staff members of a clinic. And someone said, let's run a business that's not a clinic. How did that happen? And then what were the conversations with those funders like? You know, I mean, this is not something that's really common for a community clinic to do. I would just love to hear kind of the story of that moment where you all decided to take it on and then how you ended up, you know, in the, I called it a soap factory, but gosh, natural bath and body products business. Believe it or not, it was a very organic process of evolution. And because Roots started really as a think tank with folks from the community who were in the healthcare space, like myself, who were just really concerned about persistent disparities and really wanting to understand where they came from and what we could do about it. So while we started with direct sort of healthcare delivery and going on site to reentry facilities and other places to deliver care, we were really seeking answers about what are the barriers to good health and well-being, and we were constantly reevaluating what those were. And being at that time pre-Obamacare, it was a combination of being shut out of entitlements and benefits, and also just not having economic opportunity. And so it was really sort of that, that constant revisiting of what is keeping our community from being well, and really realizing that it was directly correlated to poverty itself, and that if we were to do anything about that, we were gonna to have to directly intervene on that issue. And when we started to dig deeper and found that the reason for persistent poverty amongst so many of the people that we were serving was a former criminal record. That made it so that the training we were doing at the time, which was healthcare training, was not gonna be the appropriate venue for a lot of the people we were working with because as we know, and still to this day, it is very difficult to get into healthcare if you have a felony or even a misdemeanor. So we started to explore, well, what else can we reasonably do, right? We're a clinic, we're not gonna be, you know, we're not gonna go too far, but you know, what is it that we can reasonably do that will actually lead to gainful employment? What are the sectors? And so very long story short, we did a pretty extensive sort of landscape analysis in the local area about what, and this was at a time of a pretty down economy. We found out there's over 200 factories in Oakland. Most of them were hiring even in a down economy, but they were complaining of people not being qualified. High schools no longer teach shop and some of those basic hands-on skills. And they didn't care that much about the record as long as they would show up on time and as long as they didn't have to train them. So we started to explore manufacturing and, you know, again, we're not going to be making airplane parts or anything too complicated. So we basically ended up doing an exploration amongst our think tank to say, what is it that we can make and train people in this factory setting, but that the revenue from that will go right back into the training program and something that everyone needs. So that was kind of where we started. So what does everyone need? And another long story short, it came down to toilet paper and soap because we figured every jail, every county building, every school, every university needs those things and buys those things. And if they know that they're having a mission impact as well as societal impact, as well as buying the product, 
then, you know, that's something that we can continue to encourage over the long term, really as a strategy and as part of our advocacy around really investing in community. And so luckily, it's too hard to make toilet paper. So <laughs> soap one, and it turns out to be a very therapeutic environment. It smells amazing. And there's something just very, it's just something very uh, therapeutic about creating soap um, and having this, this tangible item that literally cleans things. <laughs> and so um, it's all kind of come full circle. And then, and then there's the name Clean 360. That's amazing. What really strikes me about that story is, first of all, you had to make a long story short several times. And there's a we that's a think tank that is doing what we call in academia, I think, structural competency, right? This idea of understanding and contemplating structural solutions and then actually trying to implement those interventions. And I think there are so few impactful, practical examples of the application of structural competency in the world. And I think part of it is, you know, my experience of community health center management is we're just constantly racing against scarcity. The best minds in your institution are really playing defense almost all the time. And to be structured as a think tank that says we're going to understand the structural drivers of poor health in our community and we're then going to actually address those structural drivers in creative ways, I think that's as special as then deciding to go on and, and have a social enterprise. But that sort of foundational you know, structure that you have. I'm curious, do you see that the same way? Do you think, that, think of that as part of the special sauce of roots? How can we get that element of what a community health center is back into more community health centers? I mean, this is foundational for Salvador Allende, Virkow, Sydney Clark. I mean, this is foundational to community-oriented primary care, but it doesn't seem to be so present in the way that we kind of structure what a community health center is these days. What, what are your thoughts about how we kind of get that back into what a community health center is? Yeah, it's difficult. It's definitely trying to turn what are now, you know, the institutions of the safety net. And a lot of it has to do with how it is reimbursed. And so I think in order to reimagine it, we have to decouple kind of the service delivery model from strictly speaking, tr trying to chase kind of the payment um, mechanism. And so, I mean, if you just say, this is how much we get paid for a visit. And so therefore we need more visits, um, then you do get stuck in sort of what is the disease treatment model of American medicine. For me, it, even, you know, before the assembling kind of the think tank, it was, you know, I had many aha moments working in community health centers that do incredible work, but what is mostly downstream work, you know, I just, I'll never forget the first time I had to fill out a billing encounter for someone who didn't have a diagnosis and like was basically told we can't get paid if there's not a disease already. So you got to say something and it's like, oh, this is how it works. Okay. Well, that actually explains a lot. And so kind of taking a step back from that and saying like, what are the actual needs and then how do we pay for them? I think it is a bit disruptive and maybe um, challenging once you've built so many systems around how to maximize your reimbursement um, in the way that the payment structure is set up. And there's no question that, you know, the way that we put it together is it's not simple. I mean, it certainly is complicated. And part of that is because we realized we had to work across other sectors besides healthcare in order to help achieve wellness. And so if that means that we have to interface with social services and with workforce and with 
the sheriff and with probation and with a number of different sectors um, that use different ways of collecting data. And, you know, there's different rules around sharing data. And so it becomes complex in that sense. And certainly paying for it also becomes a lot more work on the back end in order to make it seamless to our community and to the members that we interface with. But that's exactly what we did. We really started from that premise of what is needed and then who's responsible for this. And so what, you know, who, who's accountable? Who do we hold accountable? Who can, who can pay for this basically? And I still see our board as a think tank um, in that sense, because there is this tendency to play defense, to study for the test, so to speak, you know, figure out, you know, how to maximize what the, the they, the big structure is paying for. But if the powers that be don't think that a soap factory is part of being healthy, then we got to find out, you know, another creative way to pay for it. Because according to our community and according to our experience and according to what we've seen, that's exactly what our community needs. And so that just means we have to find another way to get it covered until the bigger system has that aha moment of realizing that we don't get to wellness if we have um, persistent poverty within a community that we're simply not addressing. Yeah, we use this word now in health equity work. You know, we have Liberation Park across the street from one of the Roots clinics here, right? Liberation. And it sounds very liberatory, right? Like we're not studying for the test. We're creating our own game plan moving forward. I'm nervous really about this idea of clinics and even more so like hospital systems creating businesses that are supposedly supposed to help the community that generate revenue. A, a lot of the social justice advocates I'm in conversation with say, you know, healthcare just needs to give up a good five, 6% of GDP, give it back to everyone else to invest in the community. And, you know, the last thing we need is healthcare doing more other things other than healthcare. You know, it's already sucking up the money and, and creating these really inequitable structures. Do you see any pitfalls to the idea of community clinics starting social enterprises? Do you see any pitfalls to the idea of hospital or health systems getting into the kind of work that you're doing? I do. It makes me nervous also. And, and I agree with, you know, maybe it is giving away a certain percentage. I actually see it as building in um, structures within those systems that do uh, fund towards equity. So whether that is revamping your procurement. I think hospitals should commit to procuring goods and services from social enterprises, from uh, business structures that are set up with the sole purpose of taking care of people that you don't want to keep seeing in your emergency room or in your psych emergency room or in your jails for that matter. And so I think if we can move towards socially responsible procurement in these large anchor institutions like our hospitals, um, and even the community health centers, they have tremendous purchasing power within their local community. And to the extent that they are contracting, whether it is um, their consultants, whether it is their construction company, uh, or whether it is purchasing goods and services, I think being very intentional and accepting the fact that you may pay a little bit more than what it is you're paying now to purchase from what is probably a prison profiteer. And no, we can't compete with prison profiteers. We just price-wise. Um, and we shouldn't be expected to because we are accomplishing sort of that triple bottom line that has to do with really serving people and accomplishing a mission and creating an actually um, healthier product, you know, which I think that you'll find oftentimes. So whether it's the catering company, the laundry service, whatever it may be, I think really um, putting an emphasis on socially responsible procurement is the most important thing for those large uh, systems that you mentioned. 
I do also worry that with anything around addressing social determinants, that it's too tempting to take an easy path and kind of check a box. And I don't think that that's the goal. I think we do all have a role to play. All places can't be all things to all people. And so I think where it relates to um, the larger institutions that are providing direct health care, I think even subtle shifts in how we are evaluating and doing quality assessment um, can make a big difference. So for example, are hospitals or large health centers looking at disparities within their own four walls, so to speak? So when they are looking at, you know, we know that there's so many measurements. And like you said, it, it takes entire a floor of people to just to comply with the things that are placed upon them. But are we looking at racial disparities, for example, for adherence or for blood pressure control or for any of those number of things? And if we can have um, an analysis of that within these healthcare institutions, I think that goes a long way. And so I, I feel like there are ways in which um, large systems can take what they're learning downstream, which is where they mostly live, right? With the exception of obviously we have preventative healthcare and pediatric care and things like that, but to take the knowledge that we're learning downstream to help inform upstream approaches that they don't have to implement but really to be part of a larger solution and be looking at it from all of the different facets, you know, across different sectors that are not solely healthcare, but also to take responsibility and be accountable for any disparities that may exist within their own system. Yeah. You know, going back to the, the earlier terminology, I think it's like, who's your structural competency unit? And is this work attached to your structural competency unit? You know, if you don't have one or if the work's not attached to it, don't try to engage in structural change. And I, I think the other, the other thing that really strikes me is that we often try to have technical standards around evaluating whether something's going to contribute to a triple bottom line. But I think the, the really special thing about Roots is the staff are of the community, the boards of the community. It's who's involved in the conversation and the rigor around that, the rigor around representation and stakeholder decision-making that actually undergirds the success of the structural competency unit. And I think what I'm seeing in a lot of this work on anchor institutions and everything is like, well, here's this technical workbook, here's this toolkit, right? With the complete absence of a structural competency unit that's actually tied to the, that's actually tied to the surrounding community and accountable to that surrounding community. Well, I, I think we see so many examples of that. And when you're saying structural competency unit, I'm thinking about places that have tremendous expertise in equity and in those frameworks, you know, like a public health department or like an equity office within a hospital, but that don't actually have any real power or influence on allocation of funding or procurements or just all of the things that you would need to actually drive systems change. They tend to end up being sort of the siloed off you know, office that's kind of reminding people, um, you know, what equity means or sort of how to approach things, but aren't actually impacting funding allocations or procurement. So it does have to be connected and it has to be centered. It can't be sort of this marginalized office or unit that's kind of off to the side of the work being done. It really has to be integral. Great. Well, switching gears a little bit, the largest job classification is navigator. So the question is, I'm curious if you get reimbursed for the services that your navigators, CHWs, and outreach workers provide. We'd love to know, you know what you can share around how you're able to support that being the largest job class at, at Roots. 
Yes, we do have funding and are reimbursed for different activities that the navigators do. And it's really a complicated, maybe um, patchwork of ways that we do that. And so I think it really depends in terms of what types of navigators. So we have a number of different types of navigators. So some of them may be, um, you know, that their salaries are covered through a government contract. We have contracts with, you know, multiple departments in city and county. And so if it is, let's say, specific to violence intervention and the navigators panel is people who have been recently involved in gang and gun violence, then that may be covered under a contract with the city of Oakland, for example. And so we have several different government contracts that cover some of the navigator positions. Then we're also able to draw down some federal dollars based on their activities And those would be through targeted case management. And so we're able to draw down maybe 50 to 90 cents on a dollar of local funding for targeted case management. And that helps cover additional, you know, additional positions. Sometimes we like to always have a couple of navigators that can see anyone um, so that it's really seamless to our members that they don't, just because they weren't recently involved in gang and gun violence or they're not formally incarcerated or they don't have complex care needs. Um, Then there's also the complex care. And so, you know, we've been kind of riding the wave of, you know, sort of when whole person care came out, we were like, great, you know, we've called our model whole health sort of since the beginning. And so when whole person care came out, we were pretty excited that there was sort of this recognition that it's more than just the healthcare piece. And so we have sort of been health homes and now CalAIM coming um, that will pay for that. But of course, that's only for the sickest folks that have complex medical and behavioral needs. And so we've been able to cover it. We have probably 45 navigators and we're able to cover them all through um, a combination of base funding through contracts, leveraging drawdown through um, targeted case management and through sort of these complex care programs like CalAIM. Great. I think the answer is kind of any and all ways possible. You center that you're going to do it and then you just figure out every way you can you can do it. We're, we're running close on time, but I did want to get your thoughts on the role of research in this work that you're doing around uh, social enterprises. Absolutely. I think it's really critical that we be able to demonstrate the impact of the work that we do in our workforce enterprises in a way that resonates with healthcare payers so that we can all come to the realization collectively that sometimes the interventions that are needed um, are not only healthcare interventions and that those can actually be paid for because we do see really dramatic improvements in a number of things from smoking to substance um, to behavioral health to BMI and the list goes on. And so I think being able to tell the story uh, with data um, in a way that can resonate with the payers, I think will be really critical. And right now that is a, is a complex chore to try to both gather the data that's needed to measure the workforce outcomes themselves, but also the impact on health outcomes and healthcare utilization and being able to demonstrate um, the impact on cost and cost savings. And so those are all things that start to feel complicated and overwhelming because now we're talking about several sectors involved who look at things from a different lens, but really kind of helping, I think, to orient it in a way that can demonstrate to healthcare payers the impact of the work. Well, that's all we have time for today. I could continue for hours, obviously. Um, I want to express my appreciation to you, Dr. Avalada, uh, for sharing your insights. And thanks so much to Siren for supporting these really fun and important conversations. 
uh, today, unfortunately, brings the regular coffee and science conversations to a close. But fortunately, Siren will host a fully interactive coffee and science wrap party on December 3rd with special guests Bethany Hamilton and Kelly Duran. So please keep an eye on your email for that Zoom invite, and we hope you will all join us then. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Siren Coffee and Science Series, a project of the Social Interventions Research and Evaluation Network at UCSF. Raven Forest Communications does our editing and sound design. Susan Shepard designed our cover art, and Aurelien Jukla composed our music. Laura Gottlieb, Dylan Gonzalez, and Yuri Cartier, that's me, produced the podcast and the live event series. Join us for our next live event by visiting sirenetwork.ucsf.edu. Questions or comments? Email us at siren at ucsf.edu. And lastly, let it be known that the views and opinions of the participants on this podcast do not necessarily state or reflect those of the regents of the University of California, UCSF, UCSF Medical Center, or any entities or units thereof. Take care. <laughs>